Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Tech, 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 tech talk. Tech, 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 tech talk. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Greetings, all you townies, out of towners, city slickers, and urban boundary riders. Welcome to the place where you can kick off your shoes and truly, truly feel right at home. It's time to get comfortable because there's a soft chair with a bum groove just your size right here at Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. And here, decked out in a virtual smoking jacket, brandishing a virtual dry martini and patting about in a soft, squishy pair of virtual slippers, it's the old Tech Talk and Matthew Dickerson. How's your week been, Matt? Well, the only thing that's not virtual amongst that is me. <laughs> Luckily, <laughs> no, thankfully. You are real. Excellent. I can, I can vouch for that, folks. Well, I want to talk briefly before we get into it today, just about the way we can analyse and use data. Mm. Now, Parkrun, an incredibly popular activity for people on Saturday mornings across the world, literally across the world. Exactly. And so you've got that, you record your time and people kind of, well, you don't record your time, it's recorded for you and you can look at that and people try and get a PB or best time for the year or whatever well, it might One be. thing Parkrun taught me is if you can't log it, log the data for it, it didn't happen. It didn't happen. So even right. during the week, if I go for a run or whatever, if I can't write down the details and get all the little facts and, and put that on a spreadsheet. It's a good it motivator. Happen. It is a good motivator. Yeah. What I find fascinating, though, is there's a little app called 5K. And what they've done is they've taken the information that's in Parkrun, which is pretty basic. It tells you how many Parkruns you've done, the times where you've done them. But and it's know, an international phenomenon, folks. It is, so, yeah, yeah, if you're not, not aware, yeah. yeah. So you've got all the information, but most people don't go and analyse all that. Maybe their times they would analyse. They look at their times and how that's changed. And Parkrun on the site gives you a basic little graph. Each site that you've run at, you can see a bit of a graph to see how you've progressed. Mm. Someone clever came up with the idea of taking that data and adding a bunch of motivators, I'd call them, question yeah. mark. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Dif- fun little checklists yeah, for you. Yeah, challenges, if you like, about them. And the challenges they came up with are quite incredible. But I know people that focus on some of these. It makes them motivated with Parkrun. They might just discover it for the first time and go, wow, this is fantastic. <laughs> but it's, it's so much stuff that we have when we have data. So, for example, with Parkrun, you run at different Parkruns at different locations. So there's a challenge called the alphabeteer. If you can run at every Parkrun, sorry, a Parkrun saying with every letter of the alphabet, and they are kind enough to exclude the letter X because that might make it a bit trickier, <laughs> but you run at every letter of the alphabet, then you get to tick off that and say, I've done 100%. I'm an alphabeteer now. Yeah, so it gives you a rating. So what percentage of the alphabet you've been able to tick off? That's right. And I know people who say, oh, I've still got my letter N. I've been to go and run at one nearby. Where's the closest one nearby? And I've heard stories about people who get on a train and travel for a couple of hours to run that park run that ticked <laughs> off that other letter of the alphabet. And that's commitment. That's commitment. But it but is. It's not committing to park run. It's committing to the app that's got your checklist. <laughs> and there are random things. So, for example, I get the alphabet here one, but then there's things like the uh, letters of your name. So tick off every park run that starts with the letter of your name. Mm. So that's kind of interesting. But then they go and do things like Old McDonald. So tick <laughs> off a park run that's got every letter mentioned in the Old McDonald song. It's a bit <laughs> random. And so uh, that, that's on letters, so that's fine. Then they do things like the time. So finish your park run 
with every available time in the seconds column. So from zero, zero seconds up to 59 seconds. So <laughs> you're probably not going to do that in 60 park runs because you're probably going to have a few that no, double no, up. Yeah, yeah. So again, oh no, I've, I've done all the other times. I need to get one that finishes in 36 <laughs> seconds. Just imagine pulling up short at the, the finishing line. No, 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 don't stop that watch. <laughs> That's right, looking <laughs> at your watch. But then you're assuming that their stopwatch is perfectly yeah. in sync with your stopwatch and oh. the person at the line hits it at the right time. There's so you've got things there. like... There'll be arguments at the finishing oh, line. That's right. No, I definitely did. <laughs> 24, 38, <laughs> not 37. Uh, you got palindrome time for obviously having uh, the, the time that goes backwards and forwards. So say 25, 52 or 25, 52. So mm -hmm. uh, a palindrome, a whole range of different ones there. I find it fascinating. One that I think would be particularly hard to tick off would be Groundhog Day. You've got to hit it the same time, identical time, two weeks in a row. <laughs> now, as much as you want to plan that, no. again, so many variables right. in there, that's a tough yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you get that, what a badge to wear. <laughs> that's yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, I've got the Groundhog Day badge. Yeah. And what, what I, I want to see right in now. the app next in analyzing data is how many people around the world or percentage maybe of users have got all these different badges so you can go for the mm. hard to get one. So Groundhog Day, I reckon yeah. that'd be a pretty tough one to get. There's so. a challenge. Something else to work towards. It is. So anyway, I just I love the idea that someone's taken a popular thing that's got data and said, how else can we analyse that data? And that's the challenge going forward, they I must think. must know that um, a lot of runners are data nerds as well. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, folks, today we've got a couple of stories that'll have you drifting into space, one with an awesome opportunity for those who see themselves as potential Martians. And we have some pleasing developments in green energy and tidal power to report, as well as some surprising therapy for those who have suffered spinal trauma. But we're going to kick off today with news from the world of AI. The folks at OpenAI have produced something new for us. Heck, it's been two weeks or so. You're probably wondering where they'd gone. Sora is a system that can churn out a video from little more than a teensy scrap of text. Now, do you think this is going to make some waves, Matt? Well, what did make waves about a year ago, and it's worth Googling if you haven't seen it, is Will Smith, the famous actor, eating spaghetti. Doesn't sound like I much. I have seen it. I'm going to do it. Have a look at it. What it is, is demonstrating, again, a year ago technology, demonstrating what you can generate in AI from text. So the instruction given to this particular AI tool was, have Will Smith eat some spaghetti. And when you watch the AI, it's terrible. Will Smith's <laughs> hands go through the spaghetti. At one stage, it looks like he's got a spaghetti chin or a spaghetti beard <laughs> growing out from his chin. It's very strange. One stage, randomly, two Will Smiths pop up eating spaghetti. And you look at that and you go, ah, we're all safe. AI can't produce a realistic-looking no, video. People at OpenAI saw that as a challenge. <laughs> That's exactly right. So in a year's time, we've gone from that to now, we've got Sora, S-O-R-A, made by OpenAI, so the team, of course, that do ChatGPT and, of course, do Dali as well for images. And you're at the point now, you can type in text and text instruction, and it will produce a 60-second video. Now, luckily, they haven't opened up this to the public, but they are demonstrating some of the videos that they're producing. So I looked at a few of them. One of them was the text said, a stylish woman walking through the busy streets of Tokyo. So fairly simple instruction. Mm. You watch the video and you can swear that there was a highly paid actress and a whole videography team set up to film this woman walking through the streets of Tokyo. And she did, yeah, in fact, wow. look quite stylish. Now, you watched it really closely. And in the background, it's a busy streets. Tokyo's got a lot of people around. In the background, you can see 
some people that just their gait was a bit funny. They walked a bit different. Not a glitch in the matrix. Exactly. It wasn't John Cleese funny walk type thing, but it was just something a little bit different. He went, oh, that's a bit funny, but you had to be looking for it. If I didn't know that this yeah, was an AI-generated okay. video, I'd just go, oh, yeah, there's someone that's taken a video of a woman walking through the streets yeah, of Tokyo. and it could have been easily just a search of the internet to find a video of a woman walking through <laughs> the streets. That's right, and I wouldn't have thought any more of it. But when you know it's generated by AI, you're looking at it very closely. I saw another one. So that's a, a realistic one. That's one that you could go and produce. Another one was the, the text was basically, give me sharks swimming between skyscrapers. Not something you see that often, mm. but these sharks move just like you see sharks. That often. <laughs> <laughs> sharks in the ocean where their distinctive body movement that a shark moves with, they mm. were doing that through the skyscrapers. And you just go, yeah. wow, if I was a video, sorry, a director of a film and I needed a scene for whatever reason of sharks flying through skyscrapers, it'd be a lot of work to set that up. In this scenario, it was type the text in, sit back for 30 seconds and then Bang, there's my there final is. version. So it is quite scary. Now, where where are we at with all of this? Well, Sora has got potential to be a great tool for those spreading misinformation. We've talked about it before, US elections this year. There's going to be a ramp up of different tools that are trying to direct voters a certain way. Mm. Obviously, many of those won't be necessarily legitimate or honest in what they're doing. So it's a bit of a problem, which is one of the reasons they haven't released this to the public so yet. So if you see Joseph, uh, Joe Biden walking as a stylish woman through the streets of Tokyo, you know it's probably not real. Or, in fact, swimming as a shark. Swimming as a shark through <laughs> skyscrapers, right. You, you okay. can go, hold on a second. Is that yeah, really Joe? Wrong. <laughs> uh, so they haven't released it to the public yet. They've been doing a bunch of what they call red team exercises. So they're basically pretending they're trying to be bad so they've got staff. be a fun job, wouldn't it? Staff in OpenAI. Right, pretend you're a bad guy and you want to use this particular tool in the worst way possible. Imagine that, yeah, being paid. You're the bad guy. Yeah. We want you to misuse our... Our, our tech. How much fun would that be? <laughs> <laughs> so they've got that sort of testing going at the moment to see how it could be used. You could use it for harassment, political manipulation. Really, uh, you know, people talk about gaslighting. What a great way to gaslight someone yeah. by oh. creating a video that's yeah, focused on them. This. Yeah, oh, so me. all sorts of things like that. Now, again... That's my nightmare. <laughs> someone created a video of you <laughs> being yeah, crazy. Yeah, uh-huh, you remember this? You remember when you did this? And you go, I, I can't remember that at all. So can I just picture it now? If if I can produce a video of you saying, folks, take ivermectin. It'll, <laughs> it'll fix all your problems. <laughs> we were sitting around the uh, breakfast table this morning and my wife said, hey, do you remember that story about the da-da-da? And she started telling the story and I was looking at her and I might as well have been a complete stranger <laughs> because I had no idea what she was talking about. Imagine she then pulled out the AI video. <laughs> Yes, that's right. <laughs> gaslighting. Uh, so, so that's right. just accuse your wife of gaslighting. <laughs> <laughs> so I think this, the story, the bottom line for this is it's getting scary. It's getting scarily mm. good, but that also means it could be used for scarily bad purposes. Yeah. Yeah, and so. one of the things that the people who are employed to be the bad guys didn't think of that the other bad guys did think of. That's right. And I suppose it's another example too of this whole rapid advancement of, of AI and various tools. It's, it's beating the speed with which regulatory framework can be put in place. I think Are we building that. Jurassic Park here? Hmm. A virtual Jurassic Park, potentially. Mm. Who knows? But but maybe it is. It's one of those things that, yes, Seems this like is a great. good idea. Yeah, until. Yeah. <laughs> NASA is taking another step towards colonising Mars, folks. Our ability to create realistic simulations improves every year and NASA is currently casting its net for volunteers who are happy to take a year out of their life to simulate life 
in a Martian colony. Matt, you've got the deets. I've got the deets and I sometimes I think, wow, that'd be cool fun. It would be, but then after a week. Yeah, for a year. <laughs> for a year. Oh, well, one of the big tests for these people is how well they can get along with other people or how they manage things when they're not getting along mm. because there's nowhere to run, nowhere to really hide. I've lived with flatmates that a day is enough yeah. and so yeah, yeah, yeah. it's good that you can get out of the house when you're living with well, certain flatmates. Well, a while back, it must be at least five or six years, they had an experiment about the, the was it the six-month or the 12-month trip to on the spaceship um, and they just set up some shipping containers. and. Right. And these go, people had to that. inhabit these shipping containers. Um, and and apparently the deal was is that if um, someone was – they had a delineated corner, a little marked corner, that's their private corner. If they're there, no one talks to them. Yeah, you don't right. even ask what's wrong. You just let them be in that corner by themselves. Oh, So they, this now is assuming you've survived that trip. Yes, you've been in the right, shipping yeah. container. You've got to the and other now end. now they're, they're um, simulating – Living. Mars, yeah. yeah, the Martian landscape. So this is applications open. So for our listeners out there that are keen, you can put an application in yeah, right so now. So April the 2nd, you've got to apply. That's right. I thought they might have put April the 1st, but then they might have put it was a setup. <laughs> yeah, right, so, that's a problem. So you've got a little bit of time left to apply, April the 2nd. Now, they've got specific people they're after. You've got to have a master's degree in a STEM field, so engineering, computer science, etc. You need to have... Ah, uh, so you can't just walk off the street and go, hey, I look handsome. No, I can't walk off the street and say, oh, I wouldn't mind free board for a year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You've got to have two years of professional experience in a related field or a thousand hours of piloting aircraft is required. One thing I thought made a bit of sense, non-smokers. Mm, so you can imagine yeah. sitting there in your Martian environment going, just ducking out for a quick smoke here. I assume that includes vapours as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah right. So. 30 to 55 years of age. And so you then put your application in, fill in all these details. In the questionnaire, you've got to try and show how you're going to handle things like dietary restrictions and communication delays. Because when you think yeah. about it, Mars averages about 225 million kilometres away from Earth. Mm. But because we're in orbit around the central object being the sun, it varies. We could be as close as 54 million kilometres or as far away as 401 million kilometres. Now, yeah. 401 million kilometres, if I'm on Mars, I want to talk back to head office or Houston. You cannot have a conversation. It's a 22-minute delay, roughly, for the signal to get from me to Earth. Yeah, so you ask me a question. That's right. I have to wait 22 minutes to hear that question. Then you have to wait 22 minutes to hear the reply. That's right. So the best I'm going to do is... 45 minutes, say, assuming you enter the question almost immediately, 45 minutes, and I get the answer back. No, 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 you didn't understand. I meant this. <laughs> 45 minutes later. So hard to have an <laughs> argument. <laughs> so yeah. you've got those sort of things. So that's what they're doing. They're simulating that as well. So yeah, they did that on that other simulation I was talking about as well. Yeah, the, the whole delay in communication. Yeah. And what that does to your psyche when you can't talk to your loved ones. <laughs> Or can't talk to anyone about mm. anything, especially if there's a problem. So they do actually have some fun from the outside. I can imagine this would be lots of fun mm. where they simulate a problem. Hey, let's go and pretend this is just blowing a widget, you know, or they need to replace yeah, a gasket yeah. or something, and then let's see how they react to that. And, of course, when you're in there, you go, oh, I should ask Houston what I should do. Mm. I'll ask, waiting around, hmm, uh, 45 minutes, we're going to wait for this emergency. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a bit drastic to well, wait this there. isn't, I mean – it's not the first time people have been cut off with communication. I mean, you, your early settlers, uh, European settlers here in Australia, look, you're waiting for, well, six months, a year, maybe longer, 18 months even, to get letters to and from, and it was all communication by letters, wasn't it? But 
the difference is is that all the problems that they were encountering were problems that were earthly problems, mm. not Martian problems. But the other problem is I think we've become so accustomed now yeah. to instant communication. Mm. People send you an email and you don't answer within five minutes and they come yeah. back and say, did you get my last email? Well, hold on, I'm just absorbing that one before I get a chance <laughs> to answer it. Yeah. And now I've got another one to deal with, which is you asking whether they saw the first one. Yeah. So because we expect that, then 45 minutes is a huge delay. Yeah. Now, is. so you're right. So this is the second Chappie experiment. So crew health and performance analog is what that stands for. So Chappie experiment. They've also got the high seas facility in Hawaii, which is the same sort of thing. And that's what you're talking about. I think that's the crewed missions are the ones you're talking about there yeah. in the actual mission to get there. This one will actually be in uh, De- Houston, Texas, where this site is, this, the full size of it, 1,700 square metres. So that's it. That's your entire living environment yeah. for that. So better than a shipping container, yeah. but still not that large. Still, yeah, considering the space that you take up As now, a human on Earth, that's right. Earth, yeah. But they'll do on that agriculture, robotic operations, wow. maintenance of the habitat, virtual reality spacewalks. So I assume they'll put a helmet on and pretend they're mm-hmm. out spacewalking. So it sounds interesting. And obviously the big thing is physically, I think they're comfortable with how we can keep humans alive and physically healthy. But the big thing that we just don't know the answer to is the psychology of it. And just the... The resilience of humans yeah. in that isolated environment. Now, I assume they're going to do it similar to a crewed mission where you might have, say, four to six people. So let's say six people. I assume they're going to have about six people there. Now, it's not that hard for one of those six to just grate with you a little bit. Yeah. Get on your nerves a little have bit. Have a quirk, shall That's we right. say. And yeah. just, oh, I hate how James does that little thing with just his eye. Shut up. He always asks questions all the time. <laughs> so that's okay again in a classroom for a week, but in yeah. an environment for a year yeah, you and you can't space. you can't go and talk to someone else or you want to ring your wife and say, oh, James, it's so annoying, but I've just got to wait 45 minutes to her go, oh, darling, that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds fascinating. So put your applications uh, in now with Houston Tech or with NASA, sorry. And uh, yeah, I'd be interested to see how this next lot goes. May the force be with you. <laughs> Various advocacy groups have, for a decade or more now, been warning of the damage to mental health brought about by social media platforms. The old sales model, uh, motto of let the buyer beware is un- unlikely to serve as any level of protection for some of the big internet players of the modern day now. Some heavy hitters representing the big cities in the US have finally said enough is enough and are taking some tech titans to court over this. Matt, do you think this is likely to see any change to the face of social media platforms? I think it'll see a change to the bank balance of solicitors. I think that's yeah. about okay. as far yeah. as it'll Congratulations, go. Congratulations, guys. Yeah, so New York City, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, YouTube. If you want to hit the big guys, mm. they're, they're the big guys, aren't they? But they've been take to, taken, of course, by the mayors or the 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 councils, the... the, the uh, I don't know, which group? Well, this one is the New York City, so the mayor, various health organisations, so the city itself is taking them on. There have been, in previous times, there have been 40 attorneys general that have sued Meta on similar grounds, and they haven't gone so well, presumably. I think the real thing is, I don't know they go into the courtroom expecting to win or be paid out some money. I think what they're really trying to do is to say, hey guys, can you just calm it down a bit? Yeah. Yeah, you've got the power to do it at the moment. And the problem is I read some of the things and they talk about the fact they're being accused, for example, of designing, 
addictive products. Mm. Well, we better sue every manufacturer of yo-yos because yeah. surely back in the day when yo-yos were a craze or Rubik's Cubes, when they yeah. were the craze, then they're addictive. And isn't that what you want to do? If I'm a toy manufacturer, you want I'm, people to play with your toy. I'm trying to design something that's addictive, <laughs> fantastic. Anything that I do, if I can design something addictive, then yeah. I've got a pretty good seller on my hands. So it seems a bit rich that we've got this commercial world we live in and everyone's trying to do that. And then, oh, you guys are doing it so well, we're now going to sue you for doing it better than anyone's ever done it before. They also argue that they've violated, this is the New York City one, they've violated the city laws related to public nuisance and gross negligence. Ah. So they're clutching at straws a little bit, yeah, I think. But wow. again, it's just one of those things. It's all been brought on by the fact that the educational and health services in New York are apparently strained with mental health impacts, and they're linking mm. a lot of that back to kids using social media. Yeah. Now, for example, Facebook. I remember when my kids were starting to use Facebook young, when they were younger, and you had to say you were 13. Now, the only proof you had that you were 13 was you put in your date of birth. So many people out there I know now, when they look at how old they are on Facebook, they're a couple of years older than they really <laughs> are because they're 11 and they put in their age of 13. So there's no policing of it. Obviously, right. the idea now is to get a bit better at that and actually have some sort of proof of ID. But it is there's no doubt about it in my mind. It is changing the minds of young people. Mm. But trying to sue them, is that the solution? Maybe parents yeah. sue the parents because they're letting kids play with these things. So, yeah, it's a it's an interesting thing. Now, when you talk to those companies, they say they've got a whole range of things in place, and different companies have responded in different ways. TikTok said they've got safeguards for teens. They've got parental controls there, mm. so the parents can have some control on it. Google said that they have emphasised their commitment to providing a safer online experience. They didn't actually say what they're doing, but they're, mm. they're saying that. Uh, Meta, which is the the parent of Facebook. A decades-long effort to ensure safe, age-appropriate online experience. So they all talk about the things they're doing to try and make it better. But mm, is it making it better? Yeah. It's an interesting one. So I don't know where this will go. I suspect nowhere. But if anything, it just highlights to people that this is a potential issue. Maybe think about it when your kids are using it or when you're using it yourself. And I think, um, like a lot of things, um, it's it comes down to education, doesn't it? Um, and so we'll see programs in schools, um, and it'll be commonplace um, the social media education yeah. programs. Yep. Um, yeah, and, and how to manage yourself on social media because the tool can be fantastic. I mean, what a great way for the modern version of pen pals to talk to people around the world. What well, a great wasn't way. Wasn't it just designed for um, university students to be able to make connections? And yeah, just on campus and yeah. it just blew up from campus to the world. To the world, yeah. <laughs> but again, that all sounds great and used properly, great way to keep in touch with people. I yep. talked to a friend of mine, actually one of the grooms of my, my wedding, and he rang me the other day and I hadn't chatted him for a couple of months and we were chatting away about different things and he wrote off a couple of things that I'd been up to lately and I went, oh, I haven't, and he, oh, no, I saw it on Facebook. So yeah. again, it's just a nice way to keep in yeah, touch. Yeah, stay in touch. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. But, and I, I like um, getting connections from old school friends. You know, they they uh, look you up and they, they you know, send you a friend request or whatever and it's nice just to touch base with these people and see what they're up to. Yeah, yeah and see how long it takes before they ask you for a loan. <laughs> yep. Over the past 67 years, since the Russians launched Sputnik way back in 1957, we've gotten very good at sending things out into orbit, our tiny blue planet. It's estimated that there's approximately 8,377 active satellites orbiting above our heads today. The dead ones sometimes crash back to Earth, that's sometimes... 
But then there are other bits of debris from spacewalks there where a bolt here or a knick-knack there may have escaped and were just not worth chasing after. Well, back in 2022, it was estimated that there were a further 27,000 bits of debris racing about the planet. And most of this junk is travelling almost 10 times faster than a sniper's bullet. Anything bigger than a fleck of paint can blow a pretty big hole in the side of any hapless spaceship that crosses its trajectory. That warrants a significant danger to future space missions. And it's high time we got serious about the cleanup operation. Matt, what's our best solution so far? I love the idea of Star Wars, someone setting up a... Uh, With lasers there. <laughs> pew, pew. But right. if, if the trouble is, as long if as they you make bust that noise. anything up... <laughs> yeah. I, actually, I saw something from, um, what is it, Richard, um, oh, the guy, a British actor from the 70s, and he was in Flash Gordon, and he uh, one of the scenes, he was flying his spaceship and he was making the laser noise, a pew, 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 and he, <laughs> the director had to stop and said, no, 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 we'll put in those we'll noises, those. it's all right. <laughs> Brian Blessed, that's who it was. Right. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, but the problem is, is you bust anything that's floating around in space, you break it into tiny bits, and each one of those becomes its own projectile that's travelling at something like 30,000 kilometres per hour. Mm. Now, if you're on the International Space Station, for example, and you had something hit you at that speed, that would be bad, but presumably you're also travelling at a similar speed. Well, that's if you're travelling at a relative speed, but you've got some um, orbits that are going polar, you polar orbits, yeah, right. and then you've got other orbits that are going around the equator, and then you've got everything in between as well. So and not everything's course. on the same trajectory. That's right, so they could cross over there. So Bingo. that's a bit scary from all of that. Absolutely. But the only thing, if you did my idea, which I'm sure has been thought about lots of people, having the Star Wars with the sound effects, then at least if you're breaking those into smaller components, they're probably going to fall out of orbit and then get burned up in the atmosphere. Possibly, yes. Eventually, but maybe they've done damage in the meantime. But that's not the solution. (laughs) You'll be be pleased to know. Okay, we're not blowing stuff up. We're not blowing stuff up. Lasers or otherwise. Maybe someone will do that in the future. Uh-huh. Maybe that was one of Donald Trump's plans, wasn't it, to go and just send them up there with the you didn't have the US Space Force and go yeah. out there and, and blow things up. Anyway, not at this stage. At the moment, we've just had a satellite launched from Astroscale was the name of the company. They're, a, I think, Singapore or a Japanese-based company. Uh, launched back in about 2013 was the company. And their job, they see this job as a, as a potential huge job or huge business to be able to go out there and take some space junk down safely and get it out of orbit. Now, when you mention the number of pieces up there in orbit, there's a bit of a market there, isn't there? There is. And I'm just thinking about uh, the the physics behind it. If you're going to travel at a particular altitude, there is a specific speed that you've got to be traveling at. So if you go faster than that, your orbit changes. So Racing up to catch something, even if you're travelling at a relative speed that's just a little bit faster, that's going to change your orbit. Well, I imagine the way they do it is they actually change their orbit was the way I was thinking they do it. So if I've got something at a certain orbit that I want to get hold of, rather than chase it at that same orbit, I might move up or down to a higher or slower orbit so I'm in a different frequency. So then when it catches up, I can drop back down. Now that yeah, but but still, the, the, the orbit that you're in is dictated by... So you'd have to time your deceleration or your acceleration to match... Perfectly. Well, the physics of space, they reckon, is very, very tricky. Very complicated. So this particular satellite that was launched was launched from New Zealand called the Address J, was essentially the idea of trying to bring down something. Now, there is some irony here. We're sending something up into space 
to bring down a piece of space junk. Space junk. Didn't we just add something to space now? Which, <laughs> yeah. if we take, if it's a one to one ratio, we've just gone one up and one back down. <laughs> what do we achieve there? Oh, yeah. <laughs> nothing. But I'm assuming that the idea is that we would put something up into space that can take down more than one. So we've got yeah. a one to many ratio. Its primary objective at this stage is to rendezvous with a Japanese rocket. It's been in orbit since 2009, so it's been up there for a while, floating around, having a nice time. Now, what they're going to do with this is they're going to go up there, they're going to deorbit the space, the, the Japanese H-2A rocket, they're going to deorbit that, and then basically hope that everything goes well to burn up in the atmosphere and have nothing left when it comes back down to Earth. Right. Mm. So it catches it and then it comes back to Earth without trying to avoid the burn-up. Well, I think it catches it and then makes it go back oh, down. Sorry. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and then it stays up there, I assume. Yeah, so, so it's knocking it out of its trajectory. Yeah, so it basically it's it does talk about the fact that it's going to locate that particular rocket and then navigate towards the target debris. It's going to take months to actually get there, so... As you say, there's some mm. tricky physics going on there. Yeah. Uh, and then basically, once it's there, and once it's been identified as the correct piece, because I'm sure lots of them look very similar. So there's no registration plates on these. They, no. they look at one and they go, I think that's it. You ever said it? And next, you know, you take it out and someone's GPS is knocked out somewhere. So, <laughs> yeah. so, so it's. But I mean, you're talking about taking down whole old satellites. Correct. Aren't you? Yeah. Um, so that's just part of the space junk. Yeah, that's right. But there's a lot of space junk up there. What do you do with it? I mean, mm. one of the other options, if we just don't care about the universe, is we take it out of Earth's orbit and just send it. Yeah. That so give it a nudge, give it a special nudge just to, to yeah. get on another trajectory somewhere. Go over there and have a look at something over there and off it goes. And it just keeps <laughs> going, presumably until it maybe runs into something or not. So mm. there's a there's a solution there. But this, I suppose this solution seems like an incredibly expensive solution. A slow solution. We're talking about months to actually get this one piece of space debris mm. and then obviously deal with that and hopefully they get it right. We all remember the Skylab from back when was that, 77? The yeah, Skylab came I down? I remember Skylab. Yeah, now we we'll That's just, one of my earliest memories of the news stories. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Well, that one was lucky. I don't think they had any control over that as far as I can remember no. back to 77. It was or just dark and, and just you know, keep your eyes to the sky. That's right. Hope you don't get hit. Now, if that came down in the middle of. Sydney or the middle of New York, Bingo. then you've got some damage. Yeah, a lot of people that are no longer with us. It didn't come down there. It was uh, outback Western Australia, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. So it landed on our patch of the world, but just luckily that no one was in, you know, inhabitants there. So it's, it's a big picture solution. Don't know what we're going to do. With all of that space junk up there, the, the numbers you mentioned, just crazy numbers, and mm. they're increasing all the time. I mean, not this is space junk, but you think about Starlink and the number of satellites being launched for Starlink. So, again, you've well, just got I remember got that was of one stuff. of the, um, the counter-arguments to his project, saying you're going to send up all these tiny little satellites. They're eventually going to become space junk, yeah. but there'll be even more of them than we've got before. Well, if you're going to put in a wind farm or a solar farm, your planning has to have the decommissioning part of that process in, say, 30 years' time yeah. when they're no longer of any use to, to someone. What happens with Starlink? I mean, who's keeping control of that? Who's saying, okay, you're going to put it up there, and I'm not big on Starlink here, anyone. Yeah. You've got to put that up there so in 30 years' time, 50 years' time, who knows, whenever it's of no use, what's your decommissioning plan and can we give you some approvals? Well, I'm not sure who approves things going into space. I'm yeah. not sure if there's someone who ticks <laughs> off, right? Good. Yep, we approve that to be launched into space. Who knows? Hmm. 
pursuit of viable renewable energy solutions has become somewhat of a boom industry. Now, a lot of people find it hard to see past solar voltaics and wind turbines, which are currently the most effective broad-scale solutions. But another form that might just make some waves in this arena is one which harnesses tidal power. To date, there have been severe lack of developments uh, able to efficiently turn the relentless energy churning around the oceans into electricity. But that's until now, perhaps, Matt. Well, it's getting there. I saw things with tidal power years ago and I thought, oh, this is this is definitely a solution. Well, yeah, you've got all those waves churning, but also the the currents below the ocean due to tides coming and going. Yeah. And we want something that's repeatable. So people talk about, what about when the wind's not blowing? That particular wind turbine's not going to blow, not going to turn, so no electricity. Tides now, they, are pretty dependable. They are. And they put wind turbines on places oh, where sorry, there's yeah, a lot, yeah. lot of wind, yeah. but there are still some times where the weather changes. Whereas tides, whatever well, the moon and the sun are still up there having mm. an influence on our water, we're going to have those tides coming in and out. So that seems to make sense in terms of a renewable source that's fairly consistent. That's great, but for whatever reason, they don't seem to have taken off. Now, this particular one, this Swedish energy startup called Monesto, seems to think that the problem in the past has been the size. It almost seems like, when I read through the information on this one, it almost seems like they were saying, yeah, they've tried it before, but they tried to make them too big. It was mm-hmm. almost as if they said, let's put one in so big we can run New York City with one unit, mm-hmm. and then they found problems with that one unit. They seem to have taken a different approach where they've got two devices. One's called a Dragon 4, one's called a Dragon 12. The Dragon 12's a bit larger, and when I say they went too big in the past, it's still fairly large. It's about 12 metres wide, and there's about 30 tonnes of mass in it. So it's still not something you just... Significant. Yeah, you don't put it in the back of the trailer and take it down (laughs) down to the ocean and drop it in. But that there will generate about 1.2 megawatts of power. So that's not too bad. Now, what they do talk about is putting a number of these together. Now, that is about 1,000 homes that will generate enough power for. So that's still pretty Mm. good. But they make the Dragon 4. Now, the Dragon 4 is much smaller. And given the fact Dragon 12 is 12 metres wide, I'm assuming the Dragon 4 is 4 metres wide, although I don't have that information, but it only produces about 100 kilowatts. So obviously significantly less than Mm. the Dragon 12, but where they talk about this one, within a day, you could basically take this to somewhere, drop it in the ocean, have something tethered back to the land, and you've got power. So I'm thinking here, tsunamis or earthquakes mm. or some sort of natural disaster that's near the ocean, we need power, we've lost all power for whatever reason, quick, let's drop some of these in. 100 kilowatts, again, you're not going to power the whole city, but you're going to get enough power for some emergency services or hospitals, yeah. just some of the things that you absolutely need. This size of that is less than a shipping container. So you can even put some people that want to go to Mars on there as well. <laughs> no, it's underwater. You know? It's not designed for that. But again, this is the thing that it's just, let's look at smaller ones. I think this is the whole concept from Monesto. Let's look at smaller ones, mm. tie them together to produce power if you need to, or just have those smaller ones that are a bit more flexible. And when I read this and looking through the research on this, what really, the light bulb that really went off for me, which I think we've talked about before, but I just went, you know what? I've, I've worked it out. I've worked out the single most effective solution to producing power, getting away from coal-fired power station. And the single greatest solution is to have a variety of solutions. Mm. So to have wind and mm. solar, to have to, uh, um, to have tidal power. So you start to combine different ways. There's other ways out there as well. And then the storage of that power, we've talked about before with hydroelectricity, with 
water storage or with gravity dams. I yeah. talked to someone the other day about CO2, compressed CO2. Yeah, so when you've right. got extra power, you go and compress CO2. So you're basically driving down some sort of piston, I assume, and then you've got it there and then, oh, we need extra power. Then you slowly release that to actually come out and start to spin a turbine. So there are so many different options and clever ways of doing it. I think this will be the thing. Mm. We will have a range of different solutions, including some tidal power, Works great for people on the coast, obviously, not so much for people inland. Well, the, the whole idea of having many, many units, I mean, that's what we do with solar voltaics, isn't it? But um, it's also kind of the Google way of operating. We've gone away from having huge mainframe-type servers to having just a whole bunch of smaller uh, units that can be easily replaced and easily main, well, maintained. Yeah, that's right. And then the challenge, of course, is how you tile that together and yeah. make it all work because that gets a bit tricky with electricity as well. Well, that's right. I mean, I understand that this is all about turbine spinning due to the tidal currents under the water. Is that right? Yeah, it's basically yeah. got it's got the the tyres that moves in and out. It's yeah. actually spinning something. So, so if you um if you've got water moving through, say a, a turbine then it's going to absorb some of that energy. You're going to have a weaker current coming out the other side. So, yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to see how you can place it yep. uh, and how it can all work. But um, So you're saying don't do it where people go surfing and they love the big 12-foot waves and suddenly you put these in and you're dropping down to six-foot waves. Well, who knows? Maybe maybe the addition of these might make the waves even bigger, Make might make them barrel more. And maybe we'll do that. Or you could even, and I hadn't actually thought of the, the secondary effect there, we could, you're obviously changing energy so you, you're not creating energy you change it from one form to another but if you had somewhere that was getting a lot of erosion some sort of coastal area with a lot of erosion because you've got big tides mm-hmm. coming in putting something like this in could produce power but also might just reduce the severity of those so you there might you have go. an impact there but I, i'm sure the researchers weren't looking at that and, and maybe it's just a bit random of a thought from <laughs> us <laughs> dropping hints to the engineers Severe spinal injury has meant a life sentence of paralysis as a pretty hard and fast rule. What a desperately terrible thing it must have been to have your independence scrapped in an instant by trauma to your spinal cord. But a glimmer of light has appeared at the end of the tunnel with recent developments in virtual reality. Matt, the brain is an amazing thing. Have I got this right, though? Are paralysed patients now actually thinking their way back to recovery of sorts? Yeah. Now, we talked about Neuralink last week where you've got a brain implant and using your thoughts to read your mind, but obviously not quite as accurately as typing out a sentence, if you like, thinking about it. Mm. And this is similar, but nothing implanted in your brain. Essentially, you've got something on that would sense your brain waves. In other words, there are brain waves that are put out when you're thinking things. Then they put on a VR headset and get people to start thinking about certain things. So think about walking while they're seeing images of walking. Think about moving your leg. Think about moving your hand or whatever it might be. Mm. Now, we know when people are paralysed from an accident, often what's happening is basically the communications are broken down. Spinal cord's broken, so the muscles are still there in the legs. The bones are still there. All the things you need to operate are there. You just can't get a signal from the brain down to... To go and operate them. That's Mm. right. But... The idea here is you just, first of all, you put the VR headset on just to learn what you're thinking when certain things are happening. And if you can capture those thoughts, then exactly as you said, you start thinking about things then start thinking about walking from that picking up of your brain waves. Then you've got sensors in your legs. Amazing. Now, I don't think at this stage they're sitting there and someone puts a headset on, trains it for a little bit, then off they go and they just start magically walking around. Yeah, Yeah. I'll do a marathon next weekend. 
but it's about just getting some movement to begin with. Now, you can still use this, as we talked about last week with Neuralink, for a wheelchair. You can think about moving in a wheelchair, move it forward, back, that type of thing. But getting to the stage where you're stimulating your muscles, that's the real objective of this. And did I also read that, that they're actually uh, getting sensation back? They can actually feel sensations in the limbs? Is that, is that correct? Or I, 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 have, I, I haven't seen. There was another one okay. we talked about with an artificial limb that right. could be sent up to sense feeling in there, so hot and cold, that type of thing. This one here is really just a, it's a one-way communication, if right. you like. Okay. You're thinking it, therefore some sort of brainwave has been created, and then that could be translated to actually having nerves stimulated in your legs mm. and suddenly start moving. I would, If this works, as well as I hope it does, it's three years minimum before anyone actually starts walking with these. Five years probably. Yeah. But it's a good step in the right direction. Yeah, what, a, what an amazing sort of way of solving a problem. Yeah, yeah it's quite an amazing way. And I don't think we realise how many brain waves we're putting out when we're actually thinking about certain Also things. how fantastic nerves are. In, uh, I mean, we know how fragile they are and easy, easily damaged they are, but the way that um, the body can repair itself. I did see something about um, severed spinal cords where we used to think that it was a case of trying to rewire, say, a million different wires together that have been cut and how, how complicated that is. But um, to r- make any sort of connections, the brain can then um, work out how to operate your leg and it might have been using thoughts that you might have used for scratching your arm or something like that in the past. So you're so saying if I had those million nerve endings and they're all cut and then in the past... It doesn't matter how they get rewired. That's right. In the past, I thought I had to connect A to A and B mm. to B through to a million, if you like. Yes. Now it's just like make them all communicate. Just, just make any of those wires connect to any of those wires right. and the brain will work out how to get it going again. And I suppose... And that was done with... It was only done with rodents, only with mice, I believe, right. uh, that they were able to, to get, um, well, paralytic legs working again, yeah. So I suppose when we're babies, we send a signal somewhere in our body and yeah. we go, I want to make my leg move and your arm moves. No, try again. Try, oh, what up? that's yeah. it there. Now, we take years before we can walk or, or right. a year before we can walk. Again, sounds like the same sort of concept. Start thinking about that. No, that was my arm. Damn it! I think something else, and eventually get the stage where your brain says, "No, no that thought makes yourself that... how to walk." Yeah, wow, that is fascinating. Yeah. Remote surgery is not really a new thing. It was first pioneered way back in the late eighties, but thirty-five years later, it's pretty common. But nonetheless. Still extremely impressive. A surgeon in Sydney operating on a patient in Los Angeles is extreme human ingenuity on multiple counts. I'm sure you'll agree. But last month, a surgical operation was undertaken at zero G on the International Space Station by a doctor right here on terra firma. Matt, it makes sense that sooner or later there was going to be the need for this in space, but still, Wow. Well, wow's the first thing. And then when we start talking about going to Mars and being on a mission to Mars and the time it takes Mm. to do that, then sometimes people will need surgery. So how are you going to do that? You can't have every specialist for every part of your body on that mission, given the fact that you might only have four to six on the mission anyway. Mm. So remote surgery is going to be a thing. Now, there's a couple of things there. One is obviously, sure, we've got remote surgery now on Earth, but the delay and latency with that is pretty minimal. Time delays. Yeah. That's right. Go to 400 kilometres where the ISS sits, and it's still a minuscule delay, but there is a delay nonetheless. Obviously, you start talking about 
22 minutes or 45 minutes when you've got a delay, that becomes a bit worse. So you need to get the stage where these devices can do some of the stuff that you need to do. So, for example, if there is blood pooling, then it needs to be able to suck that up without waiting 45 minutes to go, oh, I can see blood pooling. So Sorry, he's already gone yeah. 40 minutes ago. <laughs> he's bled out. Yeah, so oh, that, that's an important part of it. So what I thought of as well is what happens in microgravity. When you're on the International Space Station, yeah. you're not experiencing a lot of gravity. So in a normal operating surgery theatre, then an incision is made in the skin and there will be blood that will be pooling there and yeah, maybe and someone it sucks it up. sits in a nice little puddle where and a predictable puddle so yeah. you can deal with that as you will. That's right. In zero G. That's right. What happens then? So do you start to get blood floating around? How do you control that? How do you make sure that as you cut that blood's going away somewhere so the that surgeon makes an keeps accidental snick of an artery spectacular. <laughs> makes it I hope they're not thinking about look that. Look like a horror movie in an instant. <laughs> <laughs> I can just see it now. So, so they've done this now, and they they didn't do surgery per se. They have actually used a robotic arm, and they did surgery on something that was basically rubber. So they they didn't actually go right. for a person to begin with, which is fair enough. You kind of go, you're going to yeah. do what to me? Can and you, you do a practice first? Yeah, right. <laughs> and I've actually got nothing wrong with me. So you really need to cut me open. <laughs> So that'll be the other problem. They normally like fit, healthy people going on the ISS. So we're looking for someone that needs to have something cut out of the arm to go up to the ISS while we cut it out of the arm. Uh, so, or someone with a dodgy appendix. <laughs> yeah, just, uh, <laughs> it'll be okay. I'm sure it'll be okay. If not, we'll just get you back down to earth maybe. So they've done this now. They've been testing it and doing some work on it. They're doing simulated surgery on the ISS robotic arm, it's gripping, it's cutting, it's doing what it should do, and there's someone down here on Earth controlling the whole lot. Mm. So so it makes it a bit easier too when you go to your local doctor and they say, sorry, we can't possibly do that now. The specialist in in, some city that's a few hundred kilometres away, well, hold on, they did it when they are on the International Space Station. Surely you guys can do it for me. Independence is something we all tend to take for granted. It's a a precious but fragile thing that barely even occurs to us until you have to surrender any part of it. For the visually impaired, the freedom to simply navigate your way indoors or out without danger or indignity is often simply not possible. But there are a couple of new phone apps that just might turn things around for the visually impaired, Matt. Before we talk about this one, I want to talk about the lowness of people this has resulted in this being required. Oh, really? <laughs> there are some apps that have been designed before for visually impaired where you would hold the phone in front of you and you're relying on the camera in the phone mm-hmm. to actually see where you go. So It seems to me like a good idea. It does. And, and, the, and the phone reports back to you. Correct. It's giving you some either feedback audio feedback to say left, right, that type of thing, or you can have things that vibrate on your body, so you kind of left, right, that type of thing. And they found that as a person who is visually impaired or blind walks along holding the phone out in front of them trying to navigate, thieves think that's a good opportunity to take the phone and know the person's not going to be able to identify the person. So they found that that was happening. How of, of all the low things you do, yeah. there's someone who can't see where they're going. I know, I'll steal their phone, which A, it means they can't see where they continue to go, and B, you've just stolen a phone from a blind person. Well done. Congratulations, you. Mm. So they've come up with something a little bit different. Now, it's it's relying on mapping already being done, and you think, well, 
not many places have got mapping. So, for example, you leave the phone in your pocket, you walk into somewhere, you say, I'm going to this particular location. Because the location tracking of you in terms of your phone is so accurate now, it can find your way around a building. And the first thing I thought of was, well, not every building has got a good map of its internals, for example. But then I actually thought about my daughter who... When she was finishing off, she's an architect, when she was doing her degree, she was working for the architecture department at Sydney University. And she got a part-time job, and one of her first jobs was to map out Sydney University, basically, everywhere across the uni, not for blind people, but if you wanted to go from A to B, you could go into this app that had data that she'd made sure was all accurate, and you'd actually be able to find your way from A to B, knowing that you weren't going to get to a door that was an emergency door, and you can only open in one direction, or there weren't stairs if you're in a wheelchair. Okay. So I thought about that. I thought, well, that was one campus of one university. It's probably not that unusual for public buildings, large public buildings, large public facilities to have pretty good mapping of their out, their whole layout regardless. So then when you start to think about this, you've got the phone in your pocket, you walk into Sydney University, for example, mm. you would be able to use all that data that's publicly available to be able to use this to actually get your way around. So forget about images as you're walking and watching where you're going. Forget about sonar, which has been tried on phones as well. You just leave it in your pocket and you can either use, again, vibration or audio messages, turn left, go forward five metres, that type of thing, to be able to get your way around some of these. So it's it's a help, definitely. And probably when you think about the options available for visually impaired, seeing eye dogs, for example, are great, but obviously there are limitations. Having something like this as some way to help you sounds like a great way to get around the place. Hmm. Well, today's fo- uh, episode has had a big focus on medical science, and we're going to finish with a very big one, folks. I've said it before, if there's anything you cannot print in 3D or do 3D printing for, well, I don't want to know about it. The list of un-3D printables just got one item shorter with a pioneering development in printing brain cells. Matt, printing brain cells. There are a million poorly directed un-PC jokes that are going to stem out of this story, I just know it, but this is real. This we is, can now print brain tissue. This is real-ish. So, oh, real-ish. We're not okay. talking about printing brain cells and putting them into our heads. Right. Oxford University. But have, having an artificial brain outside our head, <laughs> that's the stuff of horror movies. <laughs> that's right. Plug it in. <laughs> Just like you know, an external USB drive. Oxford University have created a method to print brain cells, human brain cells, with 3D printers. Now, the way they're using this is to basically see how different things impact the brain. So, for example, you've got some 3D printed brain cells and you take a particular drug that might be being used in medical science or maybe being want to be used in medical science and they use that to see how the uh, brain would okay. react to that. So it's being used or will be used to basically continue to advance medicine on good old humans. Let it be done on some 3D printed brain cells first, maybe then progress to rats and mice and then eventually we know we're pretty happy with this and away we go. Now if you can 3D print some brain cells though, you can try lots of experiments and you're not harming rats or mice, you're not having to get all these live animals to do experiments on, you can just keep 3D printing, 3D printing, let's go and test that out now and see how we go. And when someone accused me of not having two brain cells to rub together, <laughs> I can easily print at least four or five more. There you go, take those, there's five of them. <laughs> In your face. I then started to think though, maybe if we could 3D print brain cells and stick them in our head, would that do away with the entire education system? So look, I'm thinking about being a solicitor, 
I don't know why you want to do that, but just pretend. <laughs> and so can I just get the 3D printed brain cell option for solicitor? Thanks very much. And well, then, they still need to be programmed. Well, do they? Can we just say, I want some pre-programmed 3D printed brain cells? Ah. So, again, we don't really understand memory, do we? We don't no, understand no, much. Of, we, we understand repetition is good, but we don't understand much more than that. 3D printing them, what what information has that brain cell got in it? What's 3D mm. printed? Is there anything like we've got in our brain cells? It's a bit of a mystery, but I think we'll learn more because it's a bit hard to say to someone, I just want to experiment and stick a neural link in your brain, for example. <laughs> Not sure if everyone wants to do that, but <laughs> experimenting on humans to find out what's going on is a bit tougher. But if you 3D print some, I think you've got a lot more you can actually do with it. So we might understand eventually memory, how it works, how we remember things. We, we kind of know how it works on a hard drive in terms of aligning particles and getting ones and zeros, but in a human brain, so it's a bit tougher yeah, than that. Well, mm. we're one step closer to combining the two things together. One step of many then. steps, probably. <laughs> <laughs> and, well, that's all we have for you today, folks. All my bags are packed and I'm ready to go. I'm stepping away from the microphone. We've reached the end and I hate to let you go. But I'm leaving in my EV. I'm heading home to watch some TV. Anyway, thanks for a cracking tech talk, man. <laughs> I was enjoying that. I was sitting back listening away. <laughs> I was um, thinking about what am I, how am I going to sign off this week and then I got carried away. Sorry about that, folks. That's enough of me um, singing. Some big news today, though. Uh, a bit of space surgery, life on Mars approaching closer and closer every day and some encouraging news for spinal injuries. There's a whole bunch of gifts right there, Matt, and still 10 months until Christmas. So I just want to know if I go in and put my application in for my Mars simulation. Mm. So do you think we'd still be able to do the podcast? But I'm, I'm not sure how well it would go with a 45-minute delay each time yeah. we want to talk back. <laughs> We're going to need a producer to do some editing. We might need a few <laughs> hours, a few weeks to do a 45-minute episode. So, so I'm not convinced I'll put my application in oh, just, okay. just for the sake of this podcast. Well, thank you for your consideration there. And thank you for tuning in again, folks. The harvest of technology bears some juicy fruit, and we like to pick only the best here at Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. I'm your host, James Eddy, and we're looking forward to catching you again next week for another bountiful episode. Bring your biggest bar- basket, and we will load you up to the brim. See you, see you then again, folks. <laughs> <laughs>